Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast. I'm really excited today to have Molly Bell on. She is another architect and surprise, not in New England. So it's really exciting to have her on today to tell you a little bit more about herself. And we're going to have a conversation about building science per the usual. So Molly, tell us who you are and what you've been up to. Um, okay, so I am Molly Bell. Um, I am a registered architect um, practicing in New Mexico. Um, I was born and raised in Taos, which is northern New Mexico, but I currently live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, which is kind of, it's the biggest city in New Mexico. It's centrally located and it's where the university is. Um, and I happened to get my undergrad at UNM. Um, and then I spent a couple years getting my master's at USC in Los Angeles. Um, and recently, probably about four years ago, moved back to, to the land of enchantment. Um, I could not stay away. I love New Mexico and I'm so proud to be from this state. So um, yeah, I practiced for a couple of years up in Taos and um, Taos is kind of a unique place. It's a big resident or sorry, not residential, but retirement community. So there's a lot of kind of, it's an older population there and I wasn't quite ready to um, settle in Taos, although I love it there. And that's where a lot of my work is. Um, Albuquerque is kind of just a more affordable place to live in New Mexico. It's a little bit more blue collar um, working class. So um, yes, I live in Albuquerque and with with the pandemic, um, I certainly am not going up to Taos quite as much. Um, I'm just working from home like most other architects, but um, yeah, I have, I actually, I just got a project in Albuquerque designing a um, retirement community. So that's kind of my first project in Albuquerque, but the majority of my work is up in Taos. Um, and then also, um, which is kind of how I found you, um, I have just been getting so many um, inquiries about designing passive houses and, and more sustainable houses. And a, a lot of people from bigger cities are reaching out to me, like um, New York, Los Angeles, Texas are, are all kind of coming to buying land in northern New Mexico and just wanting to kind of work remotely and live in, in these places that they wouldn't otherwise get to live in. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. First, yay, that people are reaching out to you thinking more about sustainability. I don't know if it's uh, in reference to the pandemic or if it's simply other places in the country. And maybe you found this more while you were in California. I know New York is a big proponent of it where they're they're pushing their codes so far as to be almost passive house level. And then they move to some more rural communities like Maine, where I'm based, or New Mexico, where you're based. And they they just sort of well, why aren't you building this way? You know, so it's great for us because they're coming in already somewhat educated. So I love that people are asking for it more now, you know, whether they want to participate in passive house as far as the, the program and the certification, or if they're just coming back and saying like, Hey, I've read about this. It sounds healthy. It sounds efficient. It sounds great. And 
now they have the ability to work from remote locations, right? So I guess as architects, we've always been pretty lucky is unless you work for a really big architecture firm, more often than not, you either work from your own little small office or home office. So we've sort of been doing this whole pandemic thing maybe for longer. I definitely like you go fewer places. I only go to my office once a week and I try to get to all the job sites on that day. And then I work from my home office the rest of the time. Um, I was doing Zoom kind of beforehand, but um, I've been sort of playing this environmental game since 2000 and well, I mean, really, realistically speaking, probably my entire life, just <laughs> with my background and how I grew up, you know, in a farming community and farm to table and not realizing that that would eventually become a thing. It was just a way of life. And my grandfather had a solar panel on his roof when I was a kid. So I was just thought that was really cool. My thesis was about that in, in architecture school. And then um, in 2006, I took the lead uh, the lead exam. And that was back when lead was only lead for new construction. They didn't have all the sort of breakouts. And so for me at the time I was working for a residential firm and I didn't, um, it wasn't totally applicable because a lot of that, you know, lead for new construction was really highlighted on, you know, commercial buildings where it made sense for, you know, bike racks and those kinds of things where you move to rural Maine and, you know, you do your walk score and it's terrible because it wants you to walk to Augusta, which is like an hour away. And I'm like, but there's a little downtown. Like, why would I walk to Augusta? You know, it's, it's kind of funny and, and skewed. And so, um, but people often ask me like, oh, well, how do you do this? Like, how do you kind of get into this field? Or, you know, what have you been doing? And, and, and the first thing, um, which you're really lucky because people are coming to you already kind of predisposed to, to doing better, um, which is awesome. I sort of just said, I don't do these other things, <laughs> which, which helped me. Mm -hmm. kind of move that forward. And I think as you take on some of these projects, you'll develop your own standards of practice, right? Because as architects, we we sometimes forget to reference that we have a standard of practice, right? There's, there's these things we're just not willing to do because it's not durable or it's not, you know, um, and it hasn't, it hasn't translated exactly to building science as a direct path. Um, mm -hmm. Although, it is kind of going there because if you if you do and you really understand a lot of the building science aspects of it, you sort of get durability and standards of practice as a byproduct. Yeah, yeah. But um, when you reached out to me, you were talking about um, the particular culture and local materials and styles that are common in New Mexico and like. Um, I did an interview with Rachel Preston Prince, who um, who really highlighted just some of the the heritage of of a different climate than here, right? And so I talk a lot about things that we do in the Northeast that are totally not appropriate for you. So I loved when you reached out and you were like, "Can we make some of?" these styles or things that are local to here sustainable? And I think my short answer is yes, but um, have you done some more research in thinking about, or, or what are some of the styles that are common in New Mexico that you would want to highlight and figure out how to, you know, roll into this? Yeah. Um, so New Mexico is a really kind of, it's an interesting place um, culturally, um, architecturally um 
just kind of on the sustainable front, you know, we had this huge um, passive solar movement in the 70s. Um, Ed Masria, uh, you know, I think he just won, was it, was it the, I don't know, he just won some big, I don't know if, it, I don't think it was a Pritzker prize, but anyway, he, um, he was really big on that and he's now doing the 2030 challenge, but he's kind of one of the big, big names practicing in New Mexico. And then we also have um, earth ships out here. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the earth ships, but that was Mike Reynolds. Um, he started this whole community, which is using, you know, a passive system to basically heat these residential structures. Um, and although, you know, they're not perfect, he might think they're perfect. I don't necessarily um, find them to be my personal aesthetic, um, but he certainly paved the way for kind of this whole passive solar movement in the Southwest. And I think that um, to me, that is what is really exciting is somehow incorporating like this passive system with this active system that is kind of more of the although it's technically a passive house, you know, you do still need some pretty substantial mechanical equipment um, to just get these air changes per hour. And um, so, although I don't have the solution yet, I am really excited about kind of exploring like our architectural legacy here and like using the sun, which we have an abundant um, um, source of solar energy here. So using that in my designs and then also kind of incorporating some of these new technologies um, found in passive houses. Um, yeah, and just seeing what that looks like. And then, and then you know, we have um, what is like most unique to New Mexico architecture is Pueblo style architecture and, and these adobe bricks um, that are just such a genius building material here because we have tons of mud and earth and um, you know it's a little bit of a shame because it's almost more expensive now to build with adobe in New Mexico it's more it's way more expensive um, to build with adobe than stick frame although now with lumber prices kind of skyrocketing um, I don't know if that's currently the case but um, the thing that that is really nice about adobe is that it's this massive wall so when the sun hits this this earthen mass it kind of retains the heat um, and then on the inside of the structure it kind of emits or radiates the heat throughout the day um, but with building codes you now have to put two inches of rigid insulation on the exterior of your adobe mass so it kind of negates the whole beautiful thing that is adobe um, so I am playing with a lot of these different concepts. Um, and, and like I mentioned to you, I am kind of starting off, I, I'm starting off on my whole passive house journey and how to combine those two things um, is, is a fun challenge for me. And, and also another factor is um, New Mexico also happens to be a pretty poor state. So, you know, people, um, I, I wouldn't say so much people that are moving from out of town, but certainly local residents, you know, they don't have tremendously large budgets to spend. And, and sometimes that can be a barrier to doing like a passive house. And so, you know, factoring in local materials, budget, um, 
all those things I find to be a really exciting challenge practicing in New Mexico. Yeah, there, there are some very similar challenges to, to things that are kind of happening all over the country, which is um, the single family home is very quickly not becoming affordable for a lot of people, right? And we have more people, so we don't even have enough housing for what we do have. Um, but then it also makes you think about, okay, if we have different type of housing, maybe they're they're detached or smaller communities with like this central location. Could we take advantage of some of these really amazing local things that maybe wouldn't work in a totally single family structure? But you know, and at what point is the code a detriment to doing certain things, right? It's always this, um, you know, here our code just isn't, isn't strict enough and they try to strike the energy out of it all the time. And I'm like, people can't afford to live here if their houses aren't built well enough to, you know, not have to put a, a certain amount of energy into them because it's really cold. You know, on the opposite end, I assume that for you guys, there's probably parts of the year where it's just so hot that, you know, people struggle, which is where the Adobe worked really great is because it was this heat sink. So it was often cool inside those houses. And so it's, it's amazing to me, like, how can we use some of these materials together? Um, I heard this uh, gentleman named Charlie Wing talk about windows years and years and years ago. And he's like, you know, in some houses, in some orientations, in some aspects, a single pane window that would allow you to have a lot of solar heat gain on the south facing window might be the right solution, right? You can't put a single pane window in anywhere anymore. And that is probably true for short periods of time, in which case then you should cover it up at night. <laughs> so that you don't also lose all of it. But it's a, you know, we have all these other complicated systems is like, how do we make some complicated systems for some of these other parts? And then how do we make it not complicated, right? So that people can afford it. It's this catch 22 of, we have to be building the expensive single family homes for those who can afford to do so, so we can learn more about the technology and how we can use that. So then translate it into either other types of housing or other ways to do it really cost effectively. Like it's interesting to me to hear that it's actually almost more expensive to do the Adobe now for you. When that was you know, that was the local material. It was these things we knew how to work with. It, you know, we weren't shipping it from places. It wasn't a novelty. It was just how we built. And mm -hmm. um, for that, I wonder, because I don't know a lot about Adobe. You're going to know a lot more about, about this than I will is, does it come down to a level of craftsmanship, right? So is, is it simply that it's it's a detailed process that you have to do and there just aren't that many people who do it anymore? Uh, or is it just a lot less convenient than slapping up a couple of sticks and... <laughs> yes, um, I would say the latter. Um, you know, this is kind of just a little bit like a, an observation and assumption, but um, you know, Adobe, Adobe Houses, um, used to be this thing that uh, that the family would assemble um, and they would do it room by room. So, you know, as as they acquired funding, you know, to do to make more bricks, they would add on an additional room to their house. And as their family grew, they would add on an additional room to their house. So it was very much 
um, not something that you needed to be highly skilled at. You know, you had a very simple um, form that you would make out of wood. Um, and then you would stabilize the brick with some straw and you'd let it bake out in the sun and there's your your building element. And it was really a, a very straightforward thing. But I think what happened over time is that um, although it's a simple thing to make, it is still kind of labor intensive. Um, and, it, you know, with the advent of like mobile homes and, you know, financing and um, it just became like you know, families were able to purchase a home very quickly for not a ton of money and finance it and put put that on their property. And so these old kind of building techniques um, just kind of fell by the wayside. Um, I, uh, you know, that that history in itself is something that really kind of excites me too. Like I have a couple of friends who have made every single brick of their adobe house. And I think there's something uh, you know, there's just so much pride. You can just see the pride in their, their eyes and, and, and in their home, um, that they were able to kind of build this thing themselves. And, and, and the fact that too, you know, you don't have to have your finished home on day one, you can add onto it piece by piece. And it does have these inherent, um, sustainable qualities and, um, that you just don't get in mobile homes or, you know, it's, you're, you're still going to have to heat the mobile home somehow. And, um, you, you know, put a, a nice wood burning, um, stove in your Adobe brick and it, and it just has such a nice quality to it. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I, I think it's something that probably just about anyone could do if they have the time to do it. And if they weren't more in, or less inclined to, um, go the easy way and buy a mobile home, the easy and, and maybe cost effective way. Um, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, or, I mean, I guess Sarah, right. It comes down to this whole idea of what, what equates to sustainable when, when will the mobile home start to go by the wayside as a more expensive option as the codes start to improve and change and do that. And I was thinking that, that maybe there's a hybrid system, right? So those adobe bricks maybe on the south side of the house as some kind of passive solar technology would be great. And could there be a way that you could, you know, do a, per, a prescriptive part of the code to indicate what you were doing with the bricks to keep them from meeting certain aspects of the code to really work in the ways like if you look at it a window is never going to perform as well as a wall right and we're allowed to put in windows and in fact there are generally not any restrictions on how many windows you can put in and not that I would ever encourage somebody to do it but you could basically build a glass house if you wanted to and yet when it comes to our wall systems we want to make improvements right because we don't want these stick framed things to to be these huge energy sucks, you know, but at the same time, the non-stick framed components of it could have passive value. We just did on the, the BS and beer show, we just did a, a living building challenge house. And I was pretty impressed with the trom wall sections that they had kind of built into it. 
which is probably why I'm thinking about this in, in the aspect of the Adobe brick. Does it cut down on the cost somewhat because you have one wall that they're built out of? And like, maybe they're not as effective on, you know, the north side or maybe the north side. I mean, here's me um, not knowing exactly in your climate, right? Is it backwards to mine? Would I want it to go the other way? Do I want <laughs> it to cool more than heat? Uh, right. So I'd have to do mm -hmm. all that research. Um, in fact, uh, a mechanical engineer I know yesterday said to me, we'll allow our clients to do whatever they want as long as they have the money to do it and it doesn't violate the laws of physics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's a great way to approach building science, right? So mm -hmm. um, it would be really interesting to see if there was some kind of hybrid system or um, like new frameworks is building um, straw panelization, right? So they're trying to figure out how do we combine these two technologies together to to make something that's like really sustainable and really carbon. Um, and we grow a lot of that here. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. but these are things that we knew for a long time. We sort of forgot we knew them and we moved to all these new technologies, which have been cheaper because they're funded by, you know, other chemical-based resources to do uh, we ship things all over the country or all over the world uh, and we you know sort of stopped using the things that are just local to us and make so much sense and oh yeah if we just we stopped shipping building materials all over the place like how much would that save in carbon accounting so I mean obviously it's not possible to do you know, there are economies of scales by having factories and certain things, but I'm always intrigued by, you know, like what's local and what makes the most sense. So here in New England, using wood just makes a lot of sense. We have a lot of wood. It's a renewable resource here. Mm -hmm. Our forests in Maine are mostly sustainably harvested, um, even if they don't follow uh, the track of paperwork for you know forestry council they do for the most part do a lot of sustainable forestry um but that doesn't make sense i mean we were talking on bs and beer and we we're talking about how we would use like a cedar shingle to get a pitch for a windowsill and someone was like do you know how expensive a cedar shingle would be here in i think they were in dc or something and so like you talking about the local materials just really highlights this. It's just this specialty thing. And how do we, I think it's always my, my, how do we bring the bottom up so that the other things are just as expensive? So there's not a cheaper, less good option. I mean, mm -hmm. well, so that's hard to say, right? Because you don't want people to not be able to afford anything, but maybe the single family home isn't the right solution for some people. And then how do we afford to do better in some of the alternative solutions? Um, you know, different communities, maybe there's other shared spaces like a shared kitchen or, you know, the, the popularity. So I don't know a lot about Taos, but the popularity of, um, 
these sort of independent living facilities, right? Where there's like a community of neighborhoods, but most of those people will go to the dining hall to eat like lunch and dinner. So they've really simplified kitchens. Well, you know, the kitchen's the most material dense place in the house and that costs a lot of money. So if you can really minimize that, well, okay, now we're talking, you know, and if we, if you only need one bedroom and maybe there's a, maybe there's a guest house on the property, right? So if somebody's coming to stay, they're not staying in your, I mean, I just, I just wonder, and I mean, this is the architect in me, I think, um, Maybe it doesn't apply to all architects, but I think when you were in architecture school, you probably learned about all the planned communities that they did. It's just something that we think about, like, how do we address some of this? And with everybody working from home, right, which is allowing these people from New York and other places to come out to New Mexico, um, all these big empty office buildings will probably become, you know, will, will they become apartments? Will they become condominiums? Will they become some kind of... I don't know what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the same in Albuquerque. We have a whole, um, it's called Uptown and it's got a lot of high rise, high rise for New Mexico office buildings that are just kind of vacant right now. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see, um, what happens with those spaces and, um, you know, New Mexico again with its history, uh, has, um, we had a lot of hippie communes out here in the seventies. Um, and a lot of people were experimenting with that kind of communal lifestyle and, you know, maybe it didn't work out for various reasons, but I, I kind of find like, you know, history does repeat itself and, you know, perhaps, perhaps, and hopefully each time we make that revolution, we've learned something from the past and can kind of make it better, which is kind of what I'm thinking is happening with Adobe now. You know, I think there have been younger people who have shown more interest in that as a building material. And so, um, just seeing how they can kind of modernize it. You know, it, I think it was just a historical building material and it wasn't like this modern and advanced technology. And so it just fell by the wayside, but now it's kind of coming back again, hopefully. Um, and I think also, you know, with, with the help of the building codes um, or, or heck even subsidies might even be a nice thing, but, but again, it's just such uh, it's such a basic and simple way to build a house that I really think like, even if it were taught in high school, like maybe there was a Adobe making class or something and you got to, you know, they did, they did that with stick frame for a long time. They did that when I was in high school. And so maybe it's just something that it's an educational course, which I think is what Rachel Preston Prince was kind of talking about was teaching that to, to these kids all around New Mexico. Um, so, so I think it'll make a comeback just, just as history always does. And I think what I kind of am hoping to do is to involve some building science behind it, because up to this point is it, just such a, a no brainer thing because it's a local building material and it is, um, something that people have been doing for centuries without really maybe even understanding why it was just available. Um, and I will say also, you know, one of the critiques of Adobe is that, so in Northern New Mexico, it does get very cold, tons of snow. We have some really great skiing up there in Adobe. I think, you know, it, the, 
it can become a very cold house in the winter. So insulation is necessary, but it's like, how do you insulate it? Where do you insulate it? So you don't negate the inherent good qualities of Adobe. Um, and I think, you know, to make it more accessible to, to maybe not the more wealthy clientele, perhaps it is just kind of a formula, like you were talking about having maybe just the south facing wall be made out of adobe or you know a lot of people do do trauma walls here and those are really effective and so um i can in my mind just imagine some kind of diagrammatic home indicating where you know different building materials may go and you know maybe you don't want you certainly don't want the west side fully glazed because you'll get blasted with heat and um you know, lots of insulation still in the ceiling is great. We used to insulate with dirt in New Mexico. And, you know, that's not good for a number of reasons in the ceiling. So yeah, using maybe modern technology there um, is a great idea. But I think there's a formula, long story short, I think there's a formula. I think bringing history or bringing Adobe back into current, current vocabulary, building vocabulary, is a good idea. And I think too, just for people, I mean, that's why people visit New Mexico is to see that historical architecture. It's so charming. Um, yeah, it's worth the trip out here just for that. Yeah, I have to admit, I've never been to New Mexico, but it is definitely top of, of our um in the United States travel list, right? None of us can go anywhere right now, but um, especially after I talked to to Rachel, I was like, we've just really got to go, you know, we've got to go travel in all of the parts of the country um, because you touched on a couple of things there that I think were really great. It would be awesome if there was some kind of diagrammatic path that people could follow that one, um, we hear all the time, like people hate when you use the word building science, right? Because it takes them back to like high school science. Maybe they hated that, whatever. They don't want to talk about physics. Physics is, but I think in school, if you taught kids physics through actual hands-on building, it would one be really interesting, right? I would have enjoyed physics a whole mm -hmm. lot more in in that aspect and it's not for every kid but i feel like um we've talked a lot of times about like how do we get how do we get kids interested in the trades right in the building and construction industry because they um you know they don't have access to it in a lot of the schools they think they don't like science but it turns out that they might actually really like science and then growing up and getting into a trade and understanding building science makes you think that one extra step like oh you know maybe this west facing glazing wall is a bad idea or we need some kind of shading device here or we need an adobe wall on the south that's really gonna improve but you know we don't want to freeze in february and so we need to to think about how all of these parts you know work together and interdependent and like that's not something I learned in architecture school because they don't teach you practical stuff in architecture school they teach you how to think outside <laughs> the box which I appreciate right because that that helps us to you know maybe keep alive or create things that um it's sort of a joke my husband's an engineer so we joke a lot in our family and I'm like well if engineers design buildings we all live in Walmart right like we'd all live in a real square box mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. 
Uh, but then you kind of joke about it because passive house is really most effective when it's a square box. So, I mean, in fairness, maybe they know something we didn't, but architecture is really about a lot more than that. But um, I've talked to some people who have gone into architecture or who live in some of these more um, uh, communities that just don't have access to programs like these. Like I, I am starting to learn that I actually went to a really great high school. We had, um, I grew up in a farming community. So we had both agricultural classes where they, you know, rebuilt engines and tractors and, you know, they taught horticulture and planting and, you know, practical stuff. But our high school also had a great athletics department. We had a great art department and we had a great construction tech department. So like my whole high school career, I built things in our wood shop and I did Habitat for Humanity style projects with my grandfather, right? So I had a lot of access to it, which made me wonder if that was how I went down the career path that I did. And then you sort of talk to other people who, you know, the trades is it's like it's such an issue, right? There's not enough people getting into the building industry. And I'm sure you're seeing it in New Mexico. We're seeing it here is that everybody I know who, who I would recommend to people to work with, is just busy, right? Mm -hmm. They're out a year, they're out, you know, and so, and yet there's still people coming every day saying like, I want to build, I want to build this year. And I'm like, well, I, I can't help you this year. And so we talk a lot about this in our building science community is how do we get kids interested and then you hear Rachel talk about this program that she did and how excited those kids were about both the heritage and the hands-on experience and when I was in um, college at Penn State we had a straw building class where they taught us the techniques and then they um, I didn't take the class at the time but um, they then went out and they built a a straw bale building um, in a community and it was like those, those kids were, I mean, just learning about those different techniques. I mean, it was huge and they were really excited about it. So it makes me wonder if the hands-on component and the history lesson of your area is something that is keeping people from getting into the trades and keeping this craft, like Adobe is a craft right now at this point, because, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it does take work to do it. Mm -hmm. It's not the simple solution. And so keeping that alive, um, I think you're right. There's got to be some kind of diagrammatic approach to how to use building science to also take advantage of what's local and cultural, which would be really cool. (laughs) Yeah, it would be. You know, um, I, I will also just admit, and this is something I've heard so many people say, um, I almost didn't do architecture because I had this idea that it was very math and science heavy. And that's not, it's not a strength of mine. It never has been. And, um, you know, uh, even now building science can be somewhat overwhelming, but I think if there's a way that I, who is not, and self-proclaimed not at all very, competent in that field if there's a way that I can digest it and and return it or turn it out into some kind of diagram that a lot of people can understand I think could be really beneficial um but yeah I just I I think too that also kind of you know I'm really glad I didn't give up on architecture because I think something that 
perhaps isn't as talked about in sustainability is beauty. And I do think that if you create a beautiful house or environment, people might be, you know, they certainly will, whether they're aware of it or not, find more comfort in that place. Um, and perhaps even be more inclined to maintain it for a longer period of time. You know, I think right now our industry is just like build it as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And if it falls apart in 10 years, who cares? Cause we'll be moving on to the next thing. So I think, you know, even if, <clears throat> even if it's not built out of, you know, Adobe or whatnot, I think in my practice, I really am trying to create beautiful spaces for people to really enjoy living in and, and maintain and take care of. And, um, and that in itself has some sustainable, um, qualities as well. Yeah, it, it really does. And you touched on another point that keeps kind of creeping to mind recently. And, and, um, it started when we were actually talking about mechanical systems and how, you know, some of these systems aren't meant to last that long, right. So they're disposable systems, as opposed to, you know, some other systems where the parts and the pieces are, are a longevity issue. And, you know, maybe the unit has to be replaced. So it's very easy to plan for replacement of that. And it really got me thinking on exactly what you said was, we're building disposable housing, right? And we're building really expensive disposable housing. And is, is that the culture in our, in our community? And if, if that's really what we're building, then we're spending a lot of money to build disposable housing. Like that, that feels like the wrong choice. And so when you start to talk to people about, well, like, you know, this is a legacy system or house, right? So, I mean, some of those old charming Adobe houses that you have, I mean, those are legacy structures here, mm -hmm. here in new England, we have some farmhouses from the 1800s. Those were legacy structures. And part of the reason why they lasted so long was because they understood the building science of what they had available to them at the time, which was the back 40 acres that they could cut down the wood. They wore an extra sweater because they were always freezing. And they didn't have any insulation in them, so they dried out, right? So, so I hate the statement people always say to me, buildings need to breathe. No, buildings need to dry. That's a totally different thing. So if I stop talking building science and explaining dew point and where the moisture goes and all that stuff, it was like people's eyes glaze over and just say like, it needs to dry. We just need to know where the water's gonna go so that it can dry. And there's so much in building science now that really improves the efficiency of the structure if you know how to also keep it dry, which is, which is really critical. I don't know in New Mexico if you have as much with the dry issue that we have, right? So things here are wet. You probably don't have wet as an issue, at least not for probably a, a significant portion, right? So you have really dry structures. And so you maybe would have to worry about moisture if you contained everything inside and people are cooking and they're doing all of that, but you don't have the ground moisture and all of the other sources that we have of, you know, handling the, the moisture issues. So now you can kind of move past like, okay, well, you know, we don't really have a water issue. So now where, where do we go in the building science realm? And you, you, you did touch on too is, you know, 
people tell me all the time, like, oh, I didn't go to architecture school because it was going to be too much math and science. And I kid you not, in architecture school at Penn State, you could take the history of math. That was your math requirement to graduate. You could take the history of math. You literally did no math in that class. Now, granted, you still had to take engineering classes. Um, but shout out to uh, Dr. Boothby, who we had at Penn State, and there might be other engineering professors at other schools that do this, but he taught math in a, or well, he taught structures in a way that a lot of architects could relate to with geometry because you can understand shapes and that makes sense. Granted for me, I would go out of class, ask my friend who was one of those really, really good at math people, how do I do this with calculus? Cause that seemed like it took a long time and he would tell me, but um, you know, you don't have to, you, you don't have to be good at math because sometimes once it's explained to you, it's not math in the theoretical aspect where you come up with letters and numbers and things at the end, you actually have an answer to a, to a problem. Math becomes a lot more easy to understand in, in the way that you're using it as an architect. And I don't know about you, but I work with a structural engineer. For me, it is just worth the money to make sure that the things that I'm doing and calculating and assuming are correct. And so because building has gotten so complicated over the years and a little bit less so with residential, but so complicated over the years is the architect is no longer the master of all things. The architect might be the curator of all things, right? You know, they're, they're, they're helping the homeowner, they're bringing the builder in, they're making sure all the trades are working together. Everything should be cheaper to do if you figure it out on paper and not in the field. You know, you're working your trades, you're doing really integrated design. Um, and so people who are afraid to go to architecture school, don't be afraid to go to architecture school because it doesn't have to be so strictly math and science. I mean, I don't know about every program across the entire architecture school spectrum. There could be some that are very math and science heavy, but I don't know that that's really the way architecture school works. Um, if you want math and, and, and you know a lot of math, go to school for architectural engineering. <laughs> Do math. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so yes, yeah, so I love that you brought that up because people do say that to me a lot. Oh, I was going to go to architecture school, but yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I somehow, I think I took through undergrad and grad, I think I took like three courses of calculus. I, to this day do not like, I think, you know, how sometimes like people in very stressful situations will like just blackout like that was my calculus experience like I do not recall how I passed those classes but I think like fortunately I was a strong designer and so my professors had some motivation to like get me to graduate um if from makes, I was gonna say if it makes you feel any better I knew how to do calculus, but I thought, oh, calculated calculus is, you know, complicated, whatever. So in my infinite wisdom, um, I had to take math classes as general education to graduate from school. So I was like, I'm going to take algebra, right? Like we learned how to do that in seventh grade. It should be so simple, right? That was a mistake. It would have been easier <laughs> to take calculus. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, so, but to talk about numbers, what I am kind of finding, um, 
And it, it's surprising to me that this is what I'm really geeking out on right now in building sciences. Um, I'm doing this all electric house in Taos right now. And so I'm, can, I do work with a structural engineer. I do work with a mechanical um, and electrical engineer. And I'm looking at their lighting load charts and all of the watts and, you know, making sure that our panels are sized right. And I'm just totally loving understanding all of the electrical parts of the house and how, you know, if you have a, a more insulated house or a tighter house, you know, your heating load then goes down. And so it's just like this really beautiful puzzle that you get to solve um, to create, to try and create a balanced home, basically. Um, not not pulling too much electrical, having it nicely insulated. It's 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 a it's a it's a solvable equation. It's got a it's got an answer. I don't know the exact answer yet, but I'm figuring it out. Yeah, no, it, and I I love that that's what interests you because I see you doing energy models in the future because I too went down that path and understanding all of it and then being able to change a component and see what that component's effect is on you know. So I had um, I did an energy model recently for a client. They wanted to build a net zero home, but they owned a piece of property in a neighborhood where they had to build with a particular builder, um, which was perfectly fine. This builder does quality work, but they, most of their work is, you know, code level, right? They're not doing high performance building. And so for this builder going to the extreme of what I typically build to, you know, with the super insulated structure was, was going to be really expensive, would have been the first time they did it. Right. And so, you know, they have to understand all the parts and pieces. And so we actually went through the energy model. First, I built the house as it was designed. And then I built it as just like a standard code built house, right. All their typical materials and construction details and showed the homeowner, like, this is what, you know, this is how it is. And the thing that was, was most interesting to me, which I should have just kind of known off the bat, but hadn't really thought about was in the first house, I knew I had a low load home. I had a 11,000 KBTU heating system. That was all that I needed. And then I went to the code built version and I had to add more to the heating system. Like I had to really upsize the heating system because I was like, oh wait, <laughs> you guys aren't gonna be able, you won't be staying warm in this scenario. And so we ended up on a solution that fit both their budget and uh, moved them up in the performance goals, which was wonderful. So, um, and this is part of what I love about integrated design is we brought the builder to the table and said, what do you know how to do? What what how can we simplify this? How can we get the best possible product? Because um, every builder is really different, right? So what they know how to do and what they're comfortable doing and what they've put their crews together to, to figure out how to do. I mean, there are a hundred different ways to get to a, you know, pretty good passive house, high performance house, you know? And so different crews bring different skills. So I love to bring them on during the design phase so that A, the architect isn't spending more time to design it the way that would be ideal to then put it out to bid and have six different people either send back high bids because they haven't done it that way before, or they, um, you know, they, 
they aren't putting together their best bid where, you know, working with them, you know, I, as an architect to learn something, they're like, oh, well, we've done this. And I'm like, I never thought of that. That's awesome. You know? And so uh, for me, it's a really rewarding experience when the builder comes to the table um, for the opposite reason too, is that I don't buy materials either. Right. So right now it's very frustrating because I have one of my builders that I have a great relationship with say, I just reviewed my numbers and the framing costs have gone up 50% since December. And it's like six weeks, the framing costs have gone up 50%, right? So if I didn't have a great relationship with people, I'd still be giving, you know, impractical information to, you know, to clients. And so um, it's great to have them kind of roll it in and I don't know what they can buy for cheaper. So doing that, having, um, you know, a core group of builders that you've worked with, that you know their style, that come to the table, that want to help the client get the best possible house for what they can afford, right? Because there's always a budget. No matter how much money you have, there is an amount of money you're willing to spend. Mm-hmm. And so having everybody at the table is is really rewarding because you, you feel at the end of the day, you can give them, you know, the maximum that they want. Um, which, you know, is, is fascinating to think that maybe there's some Adobe parts of that in your future builds. I don't know. It's, it's just, a- this is, yeah, you know, this is, it's definitely something. So I, uh, I don't think I mentioned this up front, but I, um, hung my own shingle in 2019. So I've been doing this for like a year and a half solo and, um, I was kind of doing some side hustle design work while I was employed for other architects. Um, and my dad was, a, is, was a contractor. He's now retired. So I, I also grew up around, um, construction. Um, but what I was going to say, um, is that the, in Taos, especially, um, the traditional way, uh, that we would, you know, we would design and then bid the project. So we weren't communicating with contractors right up front. And with the pandemic and everyone being so freaking busy, and I'm dealing with this right now, is I have a project that's completely done, like the construction documents are done, and I put it out to bid with three contractors and I only got one bid back. And it's way higher than what the budget was. Um, And no one's, you know, everyone has more work than they know what to do with. So no one's inclined to try and, you know, bring their numbers down. They just don't have to do it. Um, And so, you know, this has been a challenging, it's been a big lesson for me to learn. And I think it's even after the pandemic is over, whenever that will be, I do think it's going to become really critical in my practice. Um, and just for like my sanity, because it's been so frustrating trying to get bids for this project to just pick a contractor right at the beginning and work with them from day one. I mean, for so not just for the bidding process, but for all those reasons that you mentioned, because, you know, again, like you said, the architect as a curator, like I don't have that construction knowledge that a builder in Taos has, but I do have the capabilities to 
assemble what knowledge they have with what the owners want and what the structural engineers need. Like I, I can be a master coordinator, but I think getting all of these specialties um, together at an early stage is gonna make for a much more successful project during pandemic, post pandemic. And just in my career, I think I, I will probably only do projects. And in fact, people who are reaching out to me now and because people are like booked years out, I'm just saying, come to, the, come to me with a contractor, like do your research, find someone that you like to work with and then we can start talking about, about the project. My recommendation to you too is to to meet a couple of contractors, right? So so this has been um, you know, it'll be interesting to hear your perspective on this, but um, you know, as a young female architect, for me the struggle was like, oh, I don't know enough, and you know, this is a really male-dominated uh field. And I have just gotten to know some really phenomenal contractors and they're wonderful and they refer clients to me. So people who come to them first, they're like, hey, you got to talk to Emily. She'll help you with plans and vice versa, because I um, I now have a relationship with several builders and, you know, for us, and I'm sure you'll find this in New Mexico. So in Maine, you know, it's pretty spread out where you might land. So I usually try to have like two or three who will go to certain areas <laughs> of, of um of the, the coast or up and down or farther south or farther north. And um, I develop relationships with them and it is very respectful, right? It's like once the contractor and the architect start respecting each other, the projects go so much more smoothly. Mm-hmm. I go to the job site. I learn from their subcontractors like, oh, well, why, why did you do it that way? You know? And I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. Right. And then I learn and then I get better. And, um, with the, with the clients, I say from the very beginning, like I don't do bid work. I very rarely will do a project that gets put out to bid to multiple contractors, especially in the pandemic, because the contractors don't have time. They don't love bid work either. Right. Because it's in a good residential structure, it might take them 40 or 50 hours to put together a qualified bid for you. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting paid for that because they're, they don't have any guarantee that they're going to get that project. And so we're asking them to do a lot of free work, which feels really unfair. And so instead I encourage them and I will recommend people, you know, so I'll say, these are the three contractors after I've talked to you, like we'll do schematic design first, right? Because the contractor doesn't want to be involved in every possible scenario of how, how we might solve the, the problem of, you know, how do we build this house? Um, mm-hmm. But once design development comes in, I'll say, okay, these are, you know, if you don't have somebody else in mind already, these are the three contractors that I think you should talk to. Because the other thing is that building a home is a very personal relationship and it's 80% personality and 20% the skill of the people on your team. And so you're going to see that builder every day for minimum six months, maybe nine, 12, 14, depending on how large the house is. And you have to know that you can get the answers that you want from them, that they have your best interest in mind, that they understand the overarching goal, right? Maybe you've spent four to six months with your architect. They understand exactly what is the most important to you. But if a change has to be made, if the builder doesn't also understand what that really important thing is, sometimes things happen that don't 
follow along with the, the major goal. And so reminding people that building a house is personal and that the contractor is somebody you're going to see every day for a lot, for a very long period of time. And you need to feel comfortable with them. It's probably the most money you'll ever spend on one single purchase starts to get people to really understand the value of the architect builder relationship and bringing them on early in the process and giving them a retainer in the beginning to be part of that process because Mm -hmm. nobody wants to do free work and then not get a job out of it. It's just not really fair. So um, I'd love to change that mindset and paradigm in our, um, in our industry. And I maybe came to this too, because um, in 2009, when the market was really terrible, I did a lot more energy consulting and a lot less architecture. There were a lot of people who weren't building and designing things, but there was money coming into the state for energy programs. And I worked with a couple of public housing authorities who just the nature of how their things are written have to go with the lowest bidder. And the lowest bidder's work is not always what you intended for them to do. So you try to write your specs as tightly as possible, but there's things that that get through. And so, um, you know, that age old, you get what you pay for. (laughs) The kind of mindset is that, you know, things that are better should cost more money, but they should last a lot longer and they should have a, a, a bigger longevity across and that Maybe if we didn't hate our houses after three to five years, we wouldn't move so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think um, the, the owner contractor relationship, well, all the, the triad relationship of the owner, the contractor and the architect, you know, I often compare it to like a romantic relationship even um, because you are, you are, deciding to like partner up with this person for the foreseeable future two years you know start from pen to paper to getting the keys to your house and you really do have to have you're not gonna you know you do have to kind of know who you're about to start dating like you're not gonna just pick some random at least what the way I'm looking at it now you know like I don't want to pick a contractor or I don't want my clients to pick a contractor that they don't want to date for the next two years. Like there have, you have to have great communication. You have to have respect. Like it's just going to, it's going to be an enjoyable relationship. Um, if you kind of look at it, I think a little bit in that sense. Yeah. Great analogy. There's a lot of dating analogies, uh, in the architecture world. Um, because I think, uh, as architects, we have a tendency to be really interested in, in people, right? So just the design process is often marriage counseling, right? Mm-hmm. Getting all of the, the parts and the pieces and the things together. And, you know, unless you're building with one individual who doesn't have any other input, you're usually working with, a spouse, a significant other, kids, all kinds of people, right? So you're doing this whole like counseling session on on how to get what it is that's important to them, you know, the comfort, the health, the, the whatever into this like dream home project but then to take it another step and talk about dating the contractor for for two years or or the same with architects sometimes when people come to me um 
and they want a lot of information about working with me or whatever, they haven't done any history, I will often say, hey, talk to two or three architects. I might not be the fit for you. And that's, that's okay. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's so many different styles and so many different people. And it's okay with me if I'm not the right fit for you or for your project or what you're doing. Um, yeah. And so, uh, I totally agree is that your, your design team and your construction team and your owner, um, my friend, Mike refers to it as the three-legged stool, right? It only works really well when all three of those people have all the respect for each other. And, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. design and construction is the same person and they have two legs of the stool or whatever, but you know, that process only works really well when all of the team is, is, you know, kind of on board. So, so I love that analogy, but yeah. Um, you had reached out to me about sustainability and building science, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Did you have other questions that you wanted me to answer? Um, well, I think, uh, I don't know if I have a question, but I think I just have to say that one of the things that I'm, I find so, um, kind of fascinating about what you're doing. And I think this is kind of maybe your niche aside from the building sciences. I do really think, um, that, female entrepreneurship in this profession is a really remarkable thing to talk about as well, because um, it's not something that maybe we're, um, well, we maybe just don't have the history, you know, it's, it is a very male dominated profession. And I think aside from it being a male and female thing, I think just running your own business is a whole thing in itself. Um, I have had just like the craziest crash crash course um, in entrepreneurship in like the last year and a half. Um, And I don't know, I don't know if you have anything to say about that or like words of encouragement or um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have lots of uh, words of encouragement, um, which is, Lots of things that are fascinating and interesting to me when I went to architecture school um, 21 years ago. So I graduated um, in 2005. 50% of my class was uh, female and 50% was male. And I don't know that the percentages need to be equal, but it's kind of staggering to then see um, recent studies by the AIA, or um, I'm not entirely sure who, who did the study, that only 17% of those women, you know, if we graduated 50-50, only 17% are, are, are registered architects, right? There might be actually a lot more women working in the field that, that don't get registered. So it's always interesting to me, like, why don't people get registered? Um, did you wait to have kids till after you were registered, right? Because it's 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 tough and it's challenging right to to juggle all of that and and kudos to you because you're now juggling running your own business um which i would love to see them put into some more of the curriculum is uh, there are a lot of residential architects out there, right? So there are plenty of architects who are building commercial buildings and hospitals and skyscrapers and, you know, the artistic pieces with famous architects, but um, there are a lot of residential architects and they don't teach us anything about running a business, right? So I think that's a downside for our profession. Um, if you haven't joined the entrepreneur architect community, I 100% would do that. As a young architect, 
they are trying to overcome that and share their knowledge and experience. Um, you know, like, do we all have to write our own contracts? Can we start with a base contract, you know, which is something the AIA has sort of started to do, but can we start with a base contract that then we have approved for our locale? You know, do we have to reinvent the wheel of how the process works? You know, like the, um, if you haven't read um, the, the E-Myth yet. That's probably my favorite business book. Um, and there's one called The E-Myth Architect. So you can go like straight to how it applies to architecture. But in that, they use the example of McDonald's is a successful business. And not that I'm encouraging you to go out to eat at McDonald's, but the reason it's successful is because they've set up the system so that it's basically the same thing at every McDonald's you go to, right? You know what to expect because this system was put in place. And one thing that Maybe it's because of the creative nature of our particular business, right? We're architects, we're creatives. We have a tendency to recreate the wheel every <laughs> single time. <laughs> and so the entrepreneur architect community, which is wonderful that Mark started was because, you know, like, why are we recreating the wheel on some of these things that are not creative pursuits and endeavors? And that we often get bogged down in the myriad of details that go into running a business. And then we lose sight of the creative stuff, which is what we love to do, right? And so creating some of these systems and setups, but it's also, I don't know, I think it's like 6,500 uh, residential architects at this point, where if you have a question about something that you don't know yet, you can post your question and you'll get people who will answer it. So as individual people who are out there going it alone, um, it's really nice to bounce ideas off of someone if you're not sure, because I say it all the time. I don't know everything. If I did, I'd have a whole lot more money, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but we don't know everything. And so having a community and a place that we can go where we can ask people who we respect and like, who have been doing it longer, who know more than us, there's building science people there, there are architecture people there, there are people from your location who might have material uh, information for you um, is a really great community. So um, my friend Mike and and Bob and I uh, have what we've created our own little guild, right? Where the three of us, because we've met through all of these different places that we belong to, we've created a guild. So even though we're all independent practitioners, we rely on each other like, hey, can you look at this drawing set? Like, what am I missing? Or um, I need to do this thing and I'm not really sure how all of this goes together. And so that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast with BS and beer is mm -hmm. to connect people out there and just say like, Hey, we don't have to go it alone. We are better as a group than we are as individuals. Um, and my primary goal with that on top of just the building science and the better practice of architecture and getting over this, adversarial contract or architect relationship that we have is to really highlight um, other women in the field who are doing it and to support them and to tell their stories and to say like, hey, there isn't any reason why we can't. And um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier as the hands-on experiences. People don't know they can do something until they hear somebody else kind of say that they are either doing it or that they have this opportunity. So I talked to another architect um, who said, 
I didn't know architecture was a field that I could go into until an architect came into my school and like showed me some of the cool things they did. And he's like, that's why I went to architecture school. And it's like, oh yeah. So Mm -hmm. being out there and putting it out there and saying like, Hey, I am not only uh, an architect, I am a business owner and I'm I know all these other really cool women who are also in either construction or um, engineering in architecture. There are so many fields in this industry. And so even if you hate math and science, you can go be an architect or (laughs) project management. I mean, there've been lots of studies about how organized women are like project management might be a great fit for you because maybe you're super organized. I have to admit as an architect, I'm probably not as organized as I ought to be, (laughs) but I've developed a bunch of systems over time to help me kind of make things easier. So, so, um, I I love that you were willing to come on the podcast so that I can highlight that you're out there, you're doing this, connect you to other people that I know. Um, If you haven't connected with Rachel yet, uh, you should. She's wonderful. Uh, She's a little bit closer to you, but but stay connected to me. We we have a community, you know, we have building science people and um, I love to kind of grow this, this network of people. So I really appreciate what you're doing and, um, I hope, you know, Maine is such an interesting thing just through social media and like the, the BS and beer show and all these podcasts. I feel like there's some kind of something in your water in Maine that makes you guys all very into supporting each other and sharing your information. And so uh, I almost feel like a Maine resident um, <laughs> in New Mexico, but, but also I'm hoping that um, I can kind of help to create that community here as well. And I think that's the most important thing. And one of the things that we have loved, um, you know, the advent of social media and connecting with people, um, BS and beer, uh, started as a local discussion group, um, 10 years ago, our building science discussion group got started, got kicked off just people in the field trying to figure out how to do it better, share ideas, have a beer together, just connect, um, then Maine is a pretty big place. So uh, my friend Mike started a BS and beer group that was outside of the city of Portland for people who are a little bit farther out of the city. And we met at a brewery, similar concept, you know, homeowners could come, uh, contractors could come, building science professionals would come and we'd talk about all kinds of things and people would ask questions and it's fun. And as people got to know us on social media, they were like, oh, well, we want you to, you know, we want you to video that because we don't have that here in our community and we want to be a part of that. And um, it's a hot mess, right? People talk over top of each other and you're in a brewery and it's like, it's not a great format to, um, to really, to videotape it, right? But it's great in person, you know, meeting with those the colleagues in your area. But then we started the BS and Beer Show um, as a, a first when the pandemic hit, just to make sure that everybody in our community was okay. You know, do you have the resources you need? What's everybody doing? How are you handling it? And then word got out that we were doing that and people from other parts of the country wanted to join in and that was how it blossomed and now it's just so impressive to hear how many other I'm going to call them chapters of BSNB they're not actually related but how many other people are gearing up to start their own place you know their own networks in their own areas because of this thing, they heard about it. Oh, what a great idea. You know, we really do like to meet in person. And so it's great 
to connect so many communities across the globe. Um, you know, we have people who tune in from other countries and, you know, other parts of our country. Um, but also that it's really inspired other people to connect with there are like-minded people in your area. You just have to find them and then you grow that community and that community grows. And it's really, it's really kind of inspiring that that, you know, it's, it's spiraled out to, to those things, you know, and it's made, it's made some construction techniques and building science accessible to people who live in rural areas who maybe can't have that kind of community because there just aren't that many of them there. So, um, so I love that you feel like you're part of the main community. We we're working on a book and the, there are four authors that are working on this book and the publisher said, you know, I thought this was going to be really hard. You're all submitting your chapters. He's like, but you clearly spend too much time together because it all sounds like one voice. <laughs> so yeah, totally. So it feels good that, you know, that that's coming across and that you feel like you're, that you're a mainer and, you know, certainly come visit anytime. <laughs> I have yet to go and it's, it's pandemic. On, <laughs> yes. It's on my travel list. And when you're in New Mexico, likewise, um, yeah, I'll show you around. To. Would yeah. love to. So, well, thank you for your time today. I'm sure you have to get back to that whole thing we like to call billable hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.